Good morning. Uh, if you guys, just to reiterate, if you guys, some of you can scoot in just to make sure that people have seats, that would be awesome. Uh, how are we doing this morning? Good? Does anybody like the rain? You are an odd few. Awesome. We're going to jump into the end of Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Um, before we get going, I just want I just want to say this morning we're going to do a little bit of recapping, uh, moving back into chapter 1, and then uh, we'll wrap up chapter 4. And after this week, we're actually going to break for a few weeks from the book of Matthew, and uh, we're going to be entering into an Advent season for a bit, and then coming into January of next year, we're going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Isn't that awesome? That's going to be a really fun section to get into. So uh, let me pray for us before we get started, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, thank you for this morning, God. Thank you for each soul in this room. And uh, Lord, we don't want to go any further in this gathering without asking your spirit to come and to move amongst us, for you to take your word and plant it deep within our hearts. Jesus, we just submit, submit and surrender this time to you and ask that your will, your work be accomplished in this place, Jesus. We thank you, um, Lord, for all that you're doing on this earth. God, thank you for uh, the fact that we have this privilege to be used by you and be a part of the work that you're accomplishing. And I pray this morning, God, as we study your word, that you would unlock aspects of our hearts, that you would speak to our conditions, Jesus, that you would challenge us and encourage us and send us out from this place to be Um, the pure and spotless bride of Jesus that you died on that cross for. Lord, we just pray you'd bless this time this morning in your name. Amen. Awesome. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. Um, When my kids were young, now I have a high schooler and a third grader, but when they were little, when I would work a long day and I would come home at the end of the day and I'd walk in through the door, oftentimes the minute I got in the door, I would hear my kids go, Daddy, and then they'd run into the room and they'd grasp onto me and I'd lift them up and hold them and it was like the sweetest moment. Any of you parents remember those moments? My 14-year-old doesn't do that anymore. It's really odd and it would look really odd if he did. But I remember those days so well and um, Several times I can remember them coming in and latching onto me and I'd pick them up and I'd hug them and like pride would begin to well up inside of me and I thought to myself like I'm the best dad. My kids love me so much. Um, And then they would say, can I play video games? And I'd be like, oh my gosh, you didn't really want to see me. You wanted to play video games. They weren't coming to embrace me because they wanted me at all, but because they wanted something from me. And there were many times over the years when this would happen, and I would ponder on it for a second, and I um, always had this like little nudge from the Lord when he would speak to me and say, like, you're guilty of the same, things, the same thing at times, Chris. You're guilty of coming before me with an agenda to get something from me instead of just drawing near to me. And unfortunately, it's true of us, isn't it? Uh, We often go to God in the midst of difficult seasons in our life to get something from him. Um, I I have memories in my own life of seasons when I'd pray like crazy. I'd raise my hands in worship. I'd make these promises to the Lord. 
And truth be told, I was not there because I was in awe of him or because I wanted to be near him, but rather because I wanted something from him. And I assumed that if I did the right things, said the right prayers, if I made the right promises, that he would actually fulfill my own selfish desires. And God knows my heart. God knows my mind. God knows my motives. And because he does, he actually won't be tricked by my empty, me-centered worship. And we have to be careful in our lives to pursue a healthy relationship with Jesus more than we actually pursue what he can give us. And it's easy to fall into a trap of wanting the blessings of God, wanting the hand of God in our lives and the miracles of God, but we seem to forget that the true treasure that we ought to seek more than a change of our circumstances is actually the presence of the Most High God with us. And it's easy to come to church, it's easy to be a believer, um, but it's harder to actually be the church and live as a disciple. So again, it's easy for us to come to church and be a believer. It's difficult for us to be the church and live as a disciple. There's action in that. And Jesus did not give his life on a cross so that we would have a better day. He actually came down gave up his life for us on our behalf to forgive us of our sins so that we could enter into this relationship with him and live a victorious life by his sacrifice. Amen? And a lot of times we make this mistake of thinking that being a Christian is only about accepting Jesus as our Savior. And so we go to heaven when we die. And that is a portion of it, but did you know that in the Bible... That was never the message that Jesus preached, nor even John the Baptist leading, leading up to Jesus. They preached to Israel that the kingdom of God was coming. And what that meant was the power and the influence and the hand of God himself was available to change their lives now, at that very moment, in the very circumstances that they found themselves in. Um, recently, I had read this, this news clipping from CNN from years ago. And it was uh, talking about this circumstance in Scotland quite a few years ago where they had sent out this voluntary survey uh, to law enforcement officers asking them of their religious affiliation. Has anybody heard about this survey? And when they, when they sent out this survey, what they found was that um, what was super interesting uh, was that eight of the officers claimed that their religious affiliation was Jedi. And it sounds like a joke, but I continued to read on in this article and found that um, having Jedi as somebody's religious affiliation was really not a joke at all. Like it was reported that there were like 390,000 people in the UK at that time that had registered as Jedi being their religious affiliation. Pretty insane, right? Any, any Jedis in the room? Please, don't, no, don't raise your hand, please don't. Now, I'm not the most enormous fan of Star Wars. Uh, I know that could bum some of you out. Uh, I watched the movies. I've watched the cartoons, played the video games with my kids. Uh, I've enjoyed having, like, lightsaber fights with my sons. And if you ask me about Star Wars, I'd probably tell you something like, I love the movies, I love the storyline, I love the special effects, I love the experience. I'd tell you that I think all of the movies were far ahead of their time in terms of technology and storyline and the computer-generated computer special effects. But as we read in the book of Matthew, 
it reminds me that if I want to grow in my intimacy with Jesus, there's a huge difference between being an admiring fan of something and being a devoted follower of something. There's a massive difference. And Jesus searches for and he calls his followers to be devoted followers to him, not admiring fans. Not people that will stand around and like give them an applause and hope for him to do good things for them, but people that are devoted to following after him. And it, it may be kind of unfortunate, but there are many people in the church who really today are just admiring fans of Jesus. There's many who applaud this carpenter from Nazareth and the cross from 2,000 years ago. There's many who enjoy hearing about the miracles that Jesus performed, the, the inspiring stories that you read in Scripture, hearing the pastor share about Jesus during weekend services. However, nothing changes in their day-to-day -day lives, and it's sad. There are too many people who speak well of Jesus in the church, but neither he or his church affects what they do outside of the church walls. Jesus entertains them. They enjoy the sights and the sounds that the church provides, but there's no significant changes to the way they live or how they think. They're just fans of Jesus. And Matthew reminds me, that I must be sure that I'm not just a fan, but a devoted follower. Jesus says in Matthew to make disciples of all nations. He doesn't want a large crowd of fans speaking well of him. He doesn't want fans of the cross or people whose faith simply entails wearing a cross around their neck and bumper stickers on their cars. But people that are devoted to him. Jesus wanted followers. He wanted disciples those whose hearts were literally thrown across the line, who make it their passion every day to please him and who are willing to follow him with a reckless abandon for his cause. And we have to move from being those who admire what he's done and what he can do and what he is doing to those who are devoted to following Jesus regardless of the cost and consequences. If I recall reading about the early church correctly. Um, I recall that there, there are believers who met to worship together and to work through the challenges of following Jesus when following Jesus was cross-cultural, much like today. Um, they, they never attended church, they, they were the church. And, and I think that this level of followership Jesus is calling us to today, to not sit back and play the game and watch and observe, but to jump in and be done with the bit. I've learned over the years that um, I, I tend to build a bond with the people that I work with and serve with on a daily basis, like a deep bond. When I was traveling with skateboarders uh, across the country for years on end, um, there was a bond developed amongst those guys that traveled in that van because our conversations were not normal conversations. Our conversations went deep fast. We talked a lot about sexual addiction. We talked a lot about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. We talked a lot about what it meant to make disciples. We talked a lot about what it looked like for us to be wholly devoted followers of Jesus. We talked a lot about people's struggles, a lot of their identity crisis. We talked a lot about people's issues and the things they were trying to work through. We talked a lot about relational conflict and how you work through that. I mean, it was Years and years of this bond formulating amongst a group of guys in a van traveling around the country, that, a bond that today, I mean, last night I went to a birthday party for one of them that I don't even really hang out with a ton anymore, 
And, and as I sat there, it was like obvious to me that there was bonds formed in that band that for the rest of our lives will never be broken. There was something that Jesus did in the hearts and the lives of that group of people together that couldn't be broken. And it's much like my, my working relationship with our staff and our elders. Like I spend so much time with these people that there's bonds that are created. We talk about real things. We go deep quick. We pray together. We fast together. We seek Jesus together. We pray for each other's families. We seek reconciliation in each other's lives with other people. We're coming alongside of others in their lives and helping them walk through stressful and difficult circumstances in their life. And there's a bond that's created that can't be broken. And this is a relationship that I think God intended for all of us to have, not only with one another, but also with him. In the New Testament, this is what the church looked like. The church wasn't about people going to a service on Sunday, singing songs, listening to a message, and then going home. It was about co-workers for Christ getting together. People who were co-workers for Christ, not clients of the church. Coming together and this bond being formed. And so I want to talk to Matthew 4, 18 through 25 this morning. Ultimately, my prayer has been that Jesus would call some of you to follow him today. And for some of you, that your passion for Jesus would be restored this morning, that you'd realize the significance and the weight of the call and the timeliness of the call. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Turn with me to Matthew 4, 18 through 25, and let's read. You guys with me? You good? All right, awesome. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So what's happening? Jesus calls these four guys to leave everything and to follow after him. There's some of you this morning, I, I don't think that Jesus is calling you all to leave your jobs tomorrow and to follow after him, right? Some of you, he's calling you to stay put. But there's not any of you in this room that he's not asking something of you this morning. To leave something behind in order to make him your treasure, that which is most important to you. And so he calls this group to start following after him and they leave everything behind and even their families, and they follow after Jesus. And Jesus goes throughout the Galilee. It's interesting. It says he begins teaching in their synagogues, and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And it's really difficult for us to read this passage on this side of the cross for us, because when he says gospel of the kingdom, understand our only concept of the gospel is what? The good news of Jesus, his 
life, death, and resurrection. And this hasn't happened yet up to this point, but Jesus, like John, came preaching this gospel of the kingdom, this new kingdom that would be established, a new reign, a new king that was in order. And he wasn't ruling over a geographical location, but he was ruling over the hearts of men and women. This is the proclamation of this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching. And as a result of preaching this gospel of this new kingdom, this new king, this savior, the Messiah that has come, it says that he begins to heal every disease and every affliction among the people. And it says that his fame spread throughout all Syria. I mean, understand, when we're talking all Syria, we're talking across the borders of Israel into modern-day Syria. It says across the Jordan. We're talking, like, potentially over Jordan, like, into Saudi Arabia. I mean, his fame, his notoriety is expanding way beyond this little city in the, in the nation of Israel. Jesus' fame is, 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 is expanding very quickly. And then people start bringing Jesus all the sick so that he can heal them. Great crowds follow him from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. If you turn a few more pages over into uh, Chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So then we see other disciples being added. I've had a hard time, honestly, with this passage. Um, There's things about it that I've had a hard time getting. We all know that Jesus was the Son of God. We know him now as this Messiah, but they didn't. Uh, they, they, they didn't know that he was going to rise from the grave. They didn't know that Jesus was in the midst of starting what would become this worldwide movement that would expand rapidly. They didn't know the influence that Jesus would have. And given all of these unknowns, why would they be so quick to get up and leave everything behind to follow after Jesus? I don't know if you've ever re- wondered this when you read this, but what was it about Jesus that made these fishermen and this tax collector drop everything and follow him? Why would they get up and go immediately without even stopping to weigh their options? Like, should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? Do we know who this guy is? Should we follow him? Should we leave everything behind and, and go after him? Like, how could they choose to leave their families and their homes and their livelihood and follow this man named Jesus? And so in order for us to understand why it is they would do this, you have to dig a little bit deeper into the background of the Jewish culture of the day. And so I want to do a little background study this morning. Um, the words Jesus used here when he says, follow me, uh, were not random words. Jesus was just not like, hey, come hang. Like, come on, let's go do this thing. There were very specific words that Jesus used. Jesus strategically chose these words, and these men, when they heard these words, understood the significance of what Jesus was asking of them. They were able to count the cost by the words that he was asking knowing what Jesus was asking them to do. And so Jesus used some profound words when he called these men. In fact, he used two words that had deep and rich meaning in the first cent- to the first century Jews. They were probably the ones that, had, that these men had longed to hear since they were even children. They, they recognized Jesus' call as this call of a disciple. 
And to us, this can be kind of this foreign concept because most of us don't understand what it meant for the men that Jesus called, or, or more than that, we don't understand what this meant to the people of Jesus' time because of that. It makes this passage really difficult for us to understand, or, or we water it down into just being like, oh, come and follow me, like this nonchalant offer that Jesus is giving them. But I want us to learn how to follow, or, or I want us to learn how to follow the example of the disciples of Jesus. And first, we have to go back a little bit to understand what it meant to be a disciple. So if you back up, back in the first century, um, the, the authorities of Scripture, the teachers, were called rabbis. And, and these, these men were those who would know and they would understand Scripture. These rabbis would make interpretations of Scripture based on their own understandings, and they would teach others based on that. And this was actually called their yoke, which is really interesting. Their teaching was called their yoke. So, for example, uh, today's Sunday, if we're going to call this the Sabbath, as we would know that term, um, the, the Ten Commandments commanded this Sabbath. But what did that mean? Like, what, what, what were you abstaining from on the Sabbath? Like, we don't really get a really good idea of what it is we're supposed to not do. And it was the rabbis that would actually make this determination. So depending on what rabbi you followed, they have different yokes. They had different understandings of what Sabbath was and what the teachings were. And so for one rabbi, something like washing dishes would have been considered work. But for another rabbi, maybe it was not. And, and the rabbis were considered among the most honored and respected men of their day because of their authoritative approach to Scripture. They knew the word inside and out. And because of this, the entire Jewish education system was actually based around one central desire, to become a disciple of a rabbi. This was like the ultimate call, the ultimate honor, was to be asked by a rabbi to follow after him, to take his yoke upon you. And so in the world of Pharisaism back then, like there's these Pharisees running around, rabbis were actually these teachers who had been given this authoritative role to interpret God's word for the living, uh, for the living of, of a righteous life, to help determine what it looked like to actually flesh this out and walk this out as a disciple of this rabbi. And so they, these rabbis would actually help to define what behavior would or would not please God, depending on the rabbis that he followed. So in its simplest form, a disciple meant a student, a follower, and the teacher was the rabbi, but the disciple was more than just a student. This disciple left everything. The disciple would leave their families. They would leave their friends. They would follow their rabbi, begin to train underneath them, and to learn from them. And this was every Jewish family's desire for their sons, to become a rabbi, like the, or to become a follower of a rabbi. It was just this ultimate honor. And so for, for Jewish boys, to give you... Uh, a little background, their, their education would begin around the age of six at the synagogue. And at the age of six, they would begin to, um, they would begin what was called the Bet Sefer, which actually meant the house of the book. And so at the age of six, the, the goal of this was for these boys to memorize the first five books of the Bible completely. Anybody have the first five books of the Bible memorized at age six or at least working towards that? Probably not. And they begin to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Now, imagine you're six years old, and for the next four years of, the, of your life, the major focus of your life is to memorize 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So by age 10, every single young man in Israel knew these books word for word. They had them down pat. So at the age of 10, they would kind of graduate from Bet Sefer and they would move into this next new kind of the, the, the hierarchy. If you could graduate from there, you would be asked to move on into um, what's called a Bet Talmud. And at this point, the, these, these were like the best of the best students. They were the ones that got it. They were the ones that um, memorized it, knew it, could teach it. And so they would take the best of the best, and the rest of the kids would actually return home, and they'd go pick up the family trade. They'd start learning the jobs of their fathers and taking on the, the, the family businesses. And so for these students that, that were ages 10 to 14, they would actually spend the next years of their life memorizing the rest of the Jewish scriptures, the ones that were asked to move on. Every single word, memorized. So by their 14th birthday, which my, my son is 14, and I have not done a very good job because he does not have all of the books of the Old Testament memorized. But most of these young men at the age of 14 would retire from their educations to become apprentices to their fathers in their particular trade. Most would go home. They would learn to be fishermen. They would learn to be farmers. They would do whatever their fathers did. But there were those select few after that point, the best of the best, that would be able to approach a certain rabbi and say to the rabbi, I want to become your disciple. And the rabbi would make the decision at that point with regards to whether or not the, the rabbi would take them on as a disciple or a student and begin to train them up. And what the goal of the rabbi was, was to actually take what they knew of the word and to begin to help them flesh that out. So it wasn't just knowledge that was locked in their head, but to actually help them flesh out on a daily basis what it looked like to be obedient to what they knew. Does that make sense? Like it wasn't about lodging it up here. It was doing, acting on what you know. And so the rabbi would help walk with them and teach them how to flesh that, how to flesh that out. Most rabbis then would begin their teaching ministry about the age of 30, which is interesting because Jesus starts his, his teaching ministry at the age of 30. And since Jesus called fishermen and tax collectors, this means that they were not just following some other rabbi. This was a really interesting setup for Jesus to call forth the fishermen, those out doing their trade, to come follow after him. Because in their minds, what they knew was this was not just some random, bro, you want to come hang with me and hit the road for a little bit and go do some ministry? This was, do you want to follow me, learn from me, and do what I do? What an honor it was for them that a rabbi like Jesus would ask them, would give them the honor of actually becoming one of their students. And what's interesting about Jesus selecting the fishermen and the tax collectors is that it means that Jesus, the disciples that he selected, were not the best of the best. They were actually, they were men who went through some of the education system and weren't able to make it and went back to the family business. And these are the ones that Jesus goes and he begins to select and ask to follow after him. They weren't the highest regarded men. They were men who were willing. And I love it that Jesus always used the unlikely to do the amazing, didn't he? Constantly. He used that which the world would have never thought were capable to do some of the most supernatural, remarkable, and amazing things by his strength. 
through his power. And so here was Jesus, this rabbi, this respected man who, who spoke on the scriptures with authority, and he approaches these men and he calls them and he says, come and follow me. In other words, Jesus was saying to them, you, you're good enough. You, you, you could be a rabbi. You could teach the scriptures with my authority. Come, be my disciple. Follow after me. Leave your life behind. Leave your families behind. Leave your friends behind. Leave your home behind. Leave your parents behind. Leave your church. If you come, follow after me. So Jesus called and chose to work with those that were unqualified, in a sense. If you've ever felt as though you were not qualified enough or you were not educated enough, it didn't matter to Jesus. He can still use you. And something I'm learning, I've been learning as I've been digging into this, is that God uses the unlikely to bring forth his son. And so I, I wanted to recap a little bit and go back to chapter 1 because I think this is interesting that this is repeating again what we even saw in chapter 1 when we were reading through the genealogy because I, I think it's strange that Matthew and Luke would begin their books with this genealogy of Jesus. And we talked about this a few, a few weeks ago. It's not the most exciting read in the whole Bible. But what if the point of him writing, of them penning the genealogies of Jesus, were not simply to entertain us, but actually to make a point. And this point is being reiterated as Jesus begins to call forth fishermen to come and follow him. So we know that God had promised he would give a Messiah through the bloodline of Abraham, and he did. If we go back to the genealogy, like what if the point in Matthew and Luke's Gospels of Jesus' lineage was to reveal something to us about whom God can use to bring his Messiah into this world? Because he, it's the most unlikely, as we read through chapter 1, it's those that you would least expect that were part of the lineage of bringing the Messiah into this world, the Savior of the world, through these, these people that you would least expect, people that were kind of screw-ups, as we talked about a few weeks ago. But why did God use these people? Like, he did not have to. He could have just laid the Savior on a doorstep by a stork, <laughs> for all that we know. But couldn't there have been a simpler way? But what if the point of all of this the point of this lineage of Jesus, the purpose of all of this is for God to actually give us this, this understanding of the fact that God uses those who stumble and bumble and can't figure it out on their own. And he's calling forth the unlikely of these to actually call them to supernatural territory that only can be accomplished in and of Jesus. So, uh, a follower or a disciple is called to lay down his life to follow their master. And so when Jesus called to these men, without hesitation, they leave everything that they had, and they go and follow Jesus. And so what does this mean for you and I today? Because I think it's really easy to get caught up in the, the race to be the best. But Jesus has shown us time and time again that he's not looking for the most equipped, but he's looking for those who are willing. Moses was not the most equipped. David was not the most equipped. Peter was not the most equipped. None of us in this room are the most equipped, and it's easy to feel unworthy of God's calling on our lives. And, and I'm sorry to say that it's easy to feel that way because we're not. We're actually not capable and equipped, and that's 
God's grace. It's only by his grace. It, it was because of grace that Jesus called these men. It's by grace that we can be called these disciples, these followers of the Most High God. And here's what these disciples needed to do. They needed to learn from the words of the rabbi. A disciple in Jesus' day needed to know the rabbi's words, understand his teachings. In first century Israel, rabbis did not teach from books. They did not write scrolls. There were no textbooks. There were no how-to guides. The rabbis simply spoke their lessons, and the disciples memorized the words of their rabbis, and they learned what the rabbi said and thought about every specific situation. They, they never had to refer to their notes. They, they didn't have to go to the tabernacle and read the scripture about it. They just knew it. They were so devoted to the rabbi's teaching that they soaked up every little thing that the rabbi said. And so not only did disciples learn what the rabbi said, but the disciples would observe and learn how their teachers kept the commands of God and how he interpreted the scriptures to others. They, they, they needed to learn how, to, how, how the rabbi kept the Sabbath, how he fasted, how the rabbi prayed, how the rabbi gave to others, how he blessed his food. And on top of that, they learned how the rabbi interpreted scripture, the, the meaning he drew from them, the, the parables and stories and lessons that he gained uh, from different passages. And even the way he would explain a verse was actually important to the disciple. And, and so with all of that understanding, it makes total sense when Jesus' disciples look to Jesus in Luke 11 and they say, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And it, it was clear that these men hung not only on Jesus' every word, get this, but they actually hung on Jesus' every action. It wasn't just on what he said. They were actually called to follow him and watch what he did. This is partially why I've felt so convicted about the series that we're going into. As we get into the new year, we're going to be talking about what, what did Jesus teach us to do, how to live, and what does it look like for us to take on his yoke and to follow Jesus as our teacher and our rabbi, not to just fan out on him, give him a bunch of likes on Instagram, but know him. Do what he said. One odd thing that I think we've done over the years as Christians um, is somehow we've incorporated into our faith something that would be foreign to people in the Bible. We're content to follow God in our hearts, we're okay if someone chooses to receive Jesus in their heart. We're okay if people want to be Christians in their hearts and serve him in their hearts. And, and I was thinking about like the game Simon Says this week. Anybody ever play Simon Says? You want to play it this morning? You know, Simon Says bark like a dog. Like you bark like a dog, right? But we as Christians have actually done something really unusual with this game. We, we think that all Jesus wants from us is to know him, serve him, and follow him in our hearts. And that's just not the truth. What would happen if we played Simon Says, and Simon Says, jump up and down, and we say, I don't really need to jump up and down because I'm jumping up and down in my heart. <laughs> You'd be like, out, next, you know, you're done with the game. Simon Says, touch your nose, ah, 
I'm touching my nose and my heart. Okay, next. Like Francis Chan gives this amazing analogy when he talks about, um, like, what if I asked the question of my daughter, um, what if I asked my daughter to go clean her room and she responded, I'll clean my room, but I'll do it in my heart. Like you as a parent would be like, that is absolutely ridiculous. You actually need to go physically clean your room. And yet we're guilty of this. Like we would even narrow down this passage when Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we'd be like, I'm a follower of Jesus in my heart. I got this figured out in my heart. Like Trying to eliminate ourselves from having to make any sort of sacrifice or movement in our life to follow the ways of Jesus, to actually walk it out. Like Jesus says, pray, we go pray. Jesus says, fast, we fast. Jesus says, in order to become rich, you give, then we give. Jesus says, love your enemy, like we go love those who hate us and have persecuted us and done all sorts of harm against us. Like Jesus asks of these things. It is our responsibility as the body of Christ to figure out what it looks like to flesh this out, not to sit around and think to ourselves, I'm doing it in my heart. I may not be generous in my actions, but the Lord knows my heart and my heart is generous. I may not actually go pray for people, but I'm praying for them in my heart. Like, all of that is fine and dandy, but at what point do you actually begin to walk this out and take this seriously as a follower of Jesus? And this is what these disciples are being called to, to watch and imitate all that they see the Messiah doing, to be his followers. I've been in church long enough to hear lots of people complain. (laughs) And not to offend anybody in this room, maybe some of you might be offended. Uh, It's not my heart's desire to offend. But I think it's interesting sometimes uh, when people either come to our church from other churches or even people in general say things like, you know, the the teaching in our church wasn't deep enough. Like we're coming somewhere else because it's a little bit deeper. And, and maybe you've been guilty of saying that. Like maybe I've been guilty of saying that at seasons in my life. But the intent of that statement, if you boil it down, can be that if I could grow in my Bible knowledge, I'd be more effective as a follower of Jesus. And if only the preaching in my church would be more in-depth, then I'd be more engaged in what's happening with the church. And the truth be told, there's so many Bible teachings out there. Like, American believers tend to have, like, grown spiritually obese because you can find any teaching you want online. You can get access to it at any point you want, any time you want. We want to feed on the Word of God, which is a great thing. We believe the Bible is authoritative, that Jesus put it in place and it's given to us for instruction, for discipline, like it trains us in righteousness. We believe that. We want to feed on the Word of God, but we don't take the time to obey it. So we're guilty of just like wanting a bunch of it, but doing nothing with it. And James, in his straightforward letter, gets right to the heart of the matter for his readers. In 122, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Like, James doesn't give like this call for deeper messages. He doesn't 
call believers to be more creative in our gospel presentations. He doesn't offer some sort of six-week church campaign for church growth. He gives us really quick, down-and-dirty solution for spiritual obesity. The NIV says it, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. And I love it that James sort of reminds me that I'm not called to evade or run from the culture, but we're actually called to invade it, to go into it, to be in it, but not of it, to take the light of Jesus into the dark places, to take what we know of Jesus and what we've read and how we've seen him walk this out and begin to walk this out. As we leave these four walls, we all in this room would say, I think we want to see our community changed and transformed. Do we not? Is that going to happen when we sit around and go, I'm praying for it in my heart. I'm believing it'll happen in my heart. And nobody ever gets up to take a stand to actually walk this out. I don't, I don't sometimes know what it takes for the church to understand when Jesus extends the invitation to you to come and follow him, it's not some nonchalant offer to attend church. It's an offer to give up everything that was once important to you to make him central to your life, to follow his teachings and obey his commandments. To walk this out, church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. So I want to reiterate. Jesus says to this group of fishermen, follow me and I'll make you what? Say it. What? What? Fishers of men. For some, anybody in here fish? I don't fish. Like, using fishing analogies does not work for me. You know what I mean? Because I have no clue what it's like to catch a fish. Uh, But Jesus is speaking to a group of fishermen, and he says, follow me. And the things that you're striving for, that you're hoping for, the things that you're fishing for right now, I'm actually going to have you fish in a different way for souls, for lives. And I really don't want every person in this room to leave here this week and be going to their bosses tomorrow morning and be like, oh, the pastor said we should quit our jobs. And mom and dad, I won't talk to you for a little while. Like, I'm going on a little journey. Um, Jesus has called me to follow him. And so I'm going to go train under my rabbi and follow Jesus. And I'm piecing out on all my obligations on this earth. However, not one of you in this room doesn't have something that Jesus isn't asking you to walk away from. There's things that have taken priority in your life. There's things that you've put before even your marriage. There's things that you've put before your kids. There's, there's things that you've put before Jesus. Like you, there's all of us in this room have things that we have made idols, that we have developed as the central piece of worship in our life. 
and we've given our lives to it. And as Jesus confronts you this morning, I think realistically he's looking into your heart and he's saying, what is it? Like, if not your job, what is it that he's challenging you to be willing to lay down to follow after him? To come and follow him so that he can change your perspective. I mean, I've definitely gone through seasons in my life where other things became the priority and you lose focus of the call to become fishers of men. And yet, in a nutshell, there's two things that we really need to uphold in our lives. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love him, love others. And if there's anything in your life that's coming in the way of that this morning, I challenge you to go deep in your heart and ask why. Why has that thing been elevated to a place where it literally comes in between your worship of the Most High God and literally keeps you from loving those that he sent you to? What are those things in your life this morning? What are those things? And 23 to 25 for me in this passage are just like the cherry on top. For any of you charismatics in this room, you're like, yes! He's healing the sick and he's casting out like this. We're getting to the good stuff here. (laughs) Jesus is doing all of that. He's moving like that on this earth today. But first and foremost is this call to you this morning to follow me, not Chris, Jesus, and become fishers of men. So what's he challenging you with this morning? God may not be calling you to leave all of it, but he's calling you to leave something this morning. What is it that he's calling you to leave behind? Would you guys stand with me? you bow your heads. Um, this last thing I want to share with you, just with your heads bowed and your eyes shut, I want you to see this picture in your head. Um, this was a blessing that the Jews would speak over disciples of a rabbi. It says, whenever a rabbi came to your town, he had with him his group of disciples who were doing all they can do to keep up with him. When the disciples followed their rabbi at the end of the day, because they were trying so hard to be close to him and to follow the rabbi, they would often be covered and caked in the dust from walking behind him. And as a result, a blessing they would speak over disciples was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you follow your rabbi so closely that the dust he kicks up would be upon you. And everybody had seen this. They, they all knew what it was to be covered with the dust of their rabbi. It was the desire of the disciples to follow so closely to their rabbi that the dust that he kicked up would actually cover them. And my blessing upon you this morning, church, is may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow him so closely and know him so intimately that his dust would be upon your shoulders this morning. Let his light shine upon you that others would see his face. We pray. Jesus, I thank you for your church. God, I thank you for this 
crazy, crazy call you've given us. To come and follow you. And Jesus, I recognize that there's those in this room this morning who have never actually taken the first step to entrust their lives into your hands. Lord, to believe that you died on behalf of their sins to grant them forgiveness, that you granted them salvation, that you rose again from that cross, Jesus, and the same resurrection power and life that brought Jesus off that cross, up from the grave, is the same power and life that you've entrusted to us today by your Holy Spirit. And so I pray for those in this room, God, that don't know where they're at, that feel lost and confused, Jesus, that aren't sure what the next step is, that they would look to you this morning and ask you, Jesus, to come and save them. Save them, Lord. And Jesus, for those in this room who have walked with you for years and are as guilty as I am of just having seasons where we fan out on you more than we follow you, I'm praying for us, Jesus, that there be a real desire in us to not just know you and about you and study your words, but to be people that would allow those words to take deep root in our hearts so much so that it moves us to action, that we do what you did, say what you said, love like you loved, Jesus. May your hand be upon your church this morning. Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this last song, we're going to have a handful of people up here to pray with you, and I just challenge you this morning, like, if there's just something God is doing in your heart, and you need somebody to contend with you, to pray with you, we want to do that with you this morning. And I know it's awkward to walk up in front of a bunch of people, but I'd ask the question this morning, like, what's more awkward? Leaving without having, seeking the Lord and asking for His intervention in your life or coming forward to pray with some people who desperately want to seek Jesus with you and get you on the right track. And so if you need help this morning, if you need prayer this morning, we're here for you and we'd love to pray with you. So as we sing this next song, feel free to come forward if you need prayer. Um, And yeah, let's sing to Jesus. Amen.